Let's take our Bibles, please. Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, please. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible or Old Testament, please share your Bible with them, especially that, they be, that you're reading out of a King James Version translation. Isaiah chapter 12. And as was planning out my sermon schedule, I don't plan too far out because sometimes God changes my mind on things, but um, God knew on this 15th day that I had planned out about a month ago or two ago that uh, this would all unfold, and I'm very thankful for the timeliness of God. And uh, as we read chapter 12, I want you to read this with me and let God just settle in our hearts some things. I pray today that it will be a blessing. Isaiah chapter 12. Now, you have to help me this morning if you want to get out really on time or early. You've got to say amen a little bit with this, okay? It's cold in here, and it kind of warms things up. Isaiah 12, what you notice as we read this, the context as we go back a couple chapters into chapter 12 is all prophetical. It's prophetical. But it's practical. And so notice in verse 1, And in that day thou shalt say, God is speaking to Isaiah, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord. For he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Would you go back with me to verse 2? And we have a word of promise, a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, but it must also be a word of conviction. Where God said to Isaiah, you will have a moment of time when you will say, I will trust and not be afraid. Would you say that together with me, please, this morning? I will trust and not be afraid. Let's say it again together. I will trust and not be afraid. Father, we know that the devil is the author of fear. And when fear comes, trust is gone. And when fear comes, our mind plays tricks on us. And when fear comes, there's torment and paranoia and a snare. But you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as a congregation, as your children, for those here physically in the room and those watching by live stream, we need a word from God. We need you to shepherd us. We need you to be, get us to the place where we will say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We need to be at the place where we humble ourselves and with a heart of repentance and contriteness realize, Lord, our faith is too small and we need greater faith in God during these trying times. I ask, Father, that as you have uh, given this message and have given this passage of Scripture, that you'd comfort our hearts, help parents to comfort the hearts of your children, 
And even in moments of time, the children would come for the hearts of their parents. Help us to see the magnitude and the greatness of God in this message. And from this passage of Scripture, we pray that, Lord, that unsaved people would come to Christ as their Savior. And those, dear Lord, who are paralyzed by fear, that they'd be set free. And we'll give you thanks and glory for what you'll tell us and show us today. And we pray all these things in the wonderful, powerful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We have been in a series from the book of Isaiah. I'm very thankful God led us to having this series since the beginning of the year uh, to go along with our theme, Only God. And uh, as we will read through this again, we'll see once again, especially in the midst of a crisis right now, that it's only God who's going to see us through these things. And today we see from Isaiah 10, 11, and 12 a vital truth that all of us need to claim. It is a truth that will get us through the crises and problems of this life. It is a truth that determines if we can hold it together or whether or not we're going to fall apart. It is a truth that determines our strength and our weakness. And by the way, it's circumstances like these to bring the best or the worst out of us. It'll determine if you're a real Christian or if you're going to be someone who's going to fall apart. As I said earlier, you're going to hear a lot of this. Be concerned, but don't get obsessed by what's going on. Be concerned, but be a Christian with conviction. As you consider these things, don't become like the Pharisees and start treating everybody like lepers and thinking the lepers are. We must realize today we must have great discernment. We must be careful and cautious, but let's let God work in this situation. It's the truth right now that either you'll accept or you're going to reject. Either you're going to say, yes, I believe this, or you're going to say, no, I don't believe it. The psalmist said, the Isaiah said here, God gave him this thought, I will trust and not be afraid. Isaiah 11 and 12 is God's word, his instruction that teaches you and I how to trust and not be afraid. Would you notice three things about this passage as God teaches you and I how to trust and not be afraid. The first thing we notice, if you'll go back with me to chapter 10, I want you to notice the feeble who are conquered. The feeble who are conquered. Now for those who've been with me on the series, you know what's going on here. Isaiah has been, will be going through, will be the prophet to four different kings. The king that he is prophet to at this time is King Ahaz. His reign, his uh, king, uh, the, the, Isaiah's uh, ministry began all the way with Uzziah and continued through Jotham, and uh, now is with King Ahaz. And King Ahaz, in spite of the fact he was a very wicked king and a king who brought uh, very, very bad things into Judah and increased the amount of, of uh, idolatry that went on, and defiled the house of God and things of that nature, God still loved him very, very much. And God told King Ahaz, listen, ask me a sign and I'll give it to you. But he said, I will not ask God. Well, as we get to chapter 10, in chapter 10, God tells Isaiah, tells Isaiah I have a message I want you to give to Ahaz. And tell Ahaz, that, that, that the Assyrians who have held back the hand of Israel and the hand of Syria from attacking you, the Assyrians are going to be my arm, my hand of chastisement against, against Judah and upon King Ahaz. And so we see that God's going to chastise King Ahaz here, and it's a bad chastisement. He is conquered through this. He's beaten up. We see here in verse, if you'll go with me to chapter 10, we'll see, notice some, some uh, choice verses of Scripture. Notice in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Wherefore shall come to pass... That when the Lord has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he says, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Well, God brought Assyria in, and we'll read some of this towards the tail end of the chapter. He brought Assyria in to chastise and deal with Judah, but 
Assyria went too far. The king of Assyria went way past where God wanted him to go and did some terrible things to, to Judah. And so God said, okay, you went past the mark. I'm going to chastise you. And God deals with Assyrian. As we saw last time I was in this passage, God brought them down in one day, later on, many years later. But during Judah's reign, during Ahaz's reign with Judah, he went through a lot of different circumstances and situations. Well, part of this chastisement, if we look at it, is Judah basically was beaten up. Go down to verse 24. And in verses 24 to 34, we read a little bit here, and I'm not going to read all the verses because of time, but we read here God's hand in dealing with Judah. So notice verse 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Syrian, for he shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. So God was saying, you're going to have to be punished too. You're going to have to be punished for what you did, but don't be afraid. Well, that was... God could say that, and that was good, and we could trust God, but our human nature is we get afraid. Our human nature is we're reactionary. Our human nature is that when things change, when we get out of our comfort zone, we can tend to be afraid. You look at the things that have unfolded over the last several weeks here, it's been amazing. All of society, every facet of society that has been very proud, has been very puffed up, that has shaken his fist in the face of a mighty and holy God, the entertainment industry, our governments, our airlines industry, our financial industry, the sports sector, you name it, every one of them that thought that they were inconquerable, the high-tech industry, this COVID-19 has taken the entire world and brought the whole world down to seas. And yet, you do not hear any secular leader, aside from our president, President Trump, saying we need to have a national day of prayer. You don't hear any secular leaders saying, we need to humble ourselves before God. They think they're going to come out of this. They think this is going to go on and things will be fine, but it's not going to be fine. If you read the studies from the infectious disease experts, they're telling us that we're, we're in this thing for the long haul. It's not going to go away anytime soon. If you understand what's going on right now, we're in very, very serious times. And it's just like the plagues of Egypt. God sent one plague after another plague after another plague, and yet Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder. I don't see the sports industry bowing their hearts before God. And I don't see the financial industry bowing their hearts before God. And I don't see governments bowing their hearts before God. And so God had to deal with Judah and Ahaz and say, you know what? I'm going to have to deal with you as well there too. And Notice we get down to verse 26 and 27. He says, He shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he says later on, he says there will be a burden on their shoulder and a yoke on their neck. And that's what, that's what, that's what was happening to Ahaz and Judah, that the, the onslaught of what was going on with, uh, with uh, the Assyrians was like a burden on their shoulders and a yoke on their neck. You know, when, 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 we are, uh, when we have these kind of things happen to us, we have all these things that go on in society, we're scared and we're withdrawn and we isolate ourselves. And so as we look through this, notice something else that happens. We get down to verse 33 and 34, and I want to plant the seed in your thought as we, we get, as we get into this. God describes his judgment upon the nation. And he, and he uses the description of a... Um, I might say this, perhaps an arborist, if I can use that. An arborist who's going to take a long a threshing instrument and he's going, to, he's going to trim down a tree. And so he talks about lopping the bow. Notice verse 33. He says, uh, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. Now, as you look at that, God doesn't use words by accident. The idea of being hewn down is talking about the chopping down of a tree. He's talking about chopping to a place, as we'll see in 
chapter 11, verse 1, chopping down to the place where all that's left is a stump. All that's left, he calls it a stem, but it's basically a stump. It's like, kind of like giving some shearers to a little kid and say, go trim some things outside. But without instructions, they'd wreak havoc in your garden, and you're thankful that they just leave a stem of something there to go out. Well, God's judgment upon them was such that things were, they looked like they were hewn down. I mean, they just were humbled in their ways. And he said, the haughty shall be humbled. And then in verse 34, he says, he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Again, he's giving the idea of someone, an arborist or tree choppers going in and chopping down things, but not chopping it down with precision. He's, they're just chopping down or haphazard and destroying things along the way. And so as we get through all this, Judah has been chastised, but Judah has fear. Judah has a lot of fear in them. They're fearful about their future. They're fearful about their financial markets. They're fearful about their jobs. They're fearful about being in captivity. And many of them have escaped. And, and we read about this in this chapter here. We read about some of them being remnant that have gone different places. I mean, the fear in man is the same century after century, time after time. We all have the same fears. And when fear comes in, we find ourselves running. We find ourselves that fear is a torment. That fear, when we have fear, we lose consciousness of any sense of safety for our well-being. The Bible says the, the, uh, that fear is a pit and a sneer. Fear leaves us defeated. Fear leaves us sleepless. Fear causes us to lose our appetite. Fear leaves us cowards. Fear makes us conquered. Fear makes us want to isolate and withdraw and hide. Fear makes us want to go away because we've listened to the devil's lie that God does not care and the church does not care. Fear puts us in panic mode. Fear makes us more critical. We get critical that we don't say enough or we say too little or we say too much. Fear makes us unstable and double-minded. Fear causes us to lose our confidence. And if we're not very careful, when fear comes in, we give in place to the devil, and the devil will steal your joy. And when the devil steals your joy, you're not walking in the Spirit. And when you're not walking in the Spirit, that's an indication that your Bible reading is not changing your life, and you're not having times of prayer. And you isolate yourself and keep yourself from prayer when fear comes in. Fear leads us to think that antidepressants and psychiatric therapy and sadly suicide are the solutions. Fear leads us to believe that God is far from helping us and is not there. But as we think about fear in general, this Let's think about your fears and my fears. Let's think about the fears that are crippling us right now. We have the coronavirus fear and such and such that it is fearful. I mean, if you've, you've watched anything or you've been out there shopping, it's, it's pandemonium out there. Everybody is making their way to, to Costco and they have fallen for the media hype that they ought to stand in line and stock up on toiletries and all this and whatever. And that's your conviction. That's fine with that. I'm just saying today, there's a fear about buying things and people are worried about the financial markets and there's the coronavirus fear and there's fear that we'll come in contact with someone who has it. And there's the fear that our savings will be diminished and our financial plan will be ruined. And there's the fear of job loss. And there's the fear of losing essential supplies and hand sanitizers are gone and things of that nature. There's the fear of chaos. There's the fear of coming to church to worship God because we're afraid that somebody coming to church might carry the virus. And that, that's a possibility there. There are other fears. There's the fear that your failures cannot be reversed. There's the fear that you're going to die. There's the fear that the one next to you might die. There's the fear that you, might, that you have a failed career that cannot rebound. There's the fear that your troubled home cannot find God's peace. There's the fear that the loss of a loved one cannot be compensated for, and there's an emptiness. Yesterday, my wife spent some time ministering to the family of Ermgard Moore, because Ermgard has gone home to be with the Lord. We're thankful to meet with her daughter. And there's such a, you can sense with her daughter, such a loss that she feels right now. And her hearts were yearning and aching for her yesterday. We tried to minister and be a blessing to her as we were planning out a memorial service for Ermgard. There's the loss for us as Christians of losing a bold witness for Jesus Christ and not being soul winners during a time when we need to have soul winners. There's the fear of leaving unsafe associations and friendships that we think are there for us, but really they're not there for us. There's the fear of leaving a job 
job or industry that might be a stumbling block to some of us, and we know we need to leave, but we stay in it because we're afraid of losing our, our income or losing our job. There's the fear of dedicating your life to God and realizing that you need to live in the perfect will of God. There's the fear of surrendering your life to God and to be a preacher or a missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know what your fear is, but there's a lot of fears. When we leave this morning, you'll have a fear. When you go to bed tonight, you'll have a fear. When tomorrow the news pops up, you'll read the news and there'll be a fear. There'll be a new paranoia. Watch this. The statistics are not going to get better tomorrow. They're going to get worse. The statistics are going to say more people are dying, more people have been infected, all of these things, and you're going to be discouraged. You're going to read something else that comes out from a public health department and you'll have fear. They might even come out this week and ban all mass gatherings here in Alameda County and you'll have a fear. You might find out and we might tell you that we think someone in our congregation may have tested positive. We don't know if we came in contact with them, but you'll have fear. You might during this week, aside from all that, you might go to the doctor and have a doctor's appointment and you might have a disease diagnosis you did not expect. We don't know what it is, but I'm saying this morning, we have the feeble that are conquered. These people had the assurance of God early on in chapter 10 that this chastisement would come, but God would take care of them and God would see them through that and God was loving them through this chastisement. But they had got to the place where their fears overcame them and they were conquered by their fears. I wonder how many of us this morning are conquered by our fears. They were weakened by those fears. But notice the second thing this morning very quickly. We see the feeble conquered, but you notice chapter 11. This is where we get a word of encouragement. Ahaz died, but Isaiah is still alive. Ahaz, if my memory serves right, his reign was about 16 years. Not a long reign. And the people were looking at their kingdom. And they're thinking, we had a failed king. We have a failed kingdom. And they're looking back three generations back. Uzziah was okay, but he messed up. And then his son Jotham came on the throne. And Jotham really didn't stir anything up. He just kind of floated with things. He was a good guy, but he just kind of floated with things. And then his son Ahaz came to the throne, and Ahaz really messed things up. And the people's confidence was shaken because they really didn't know if Hezekiah would pan out. Because you know the old cliche, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, amen? And they're thinking, well, if he messed up his, and, and, his, and, and, and Jotham didn't do much, do, do we, can we really trust Hezekiah is going to do something great? And the people's confidence was shaken. And they had fear about, will we go into captivity again? And, uh, you know, is there, you know, will the Assyrians, will the Assyrians rise back up? And uh, where are we going to get our food? And uh, will Israel rise back up? And they're all fearful of that. And God gives us chapter 11. And notice in chapter 11, God gives us encouragement that we need to get our eyes off the circumstances and get our eyes on the Savior. And we need to get our eyes off of the conditions and get our eyes on a king. And this king is not a failed king. And this king is not an unholy king. And this king is not an ungodly king. This king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the king who never fails. He's the king who's eternal. He's the king who's all powerful. He's the king who reigns on high. He's a faultless king and his name is Jesus Christ this morning. You'll notice chapter 11, if you remember what I said earlier, in chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, God gives us a colorful illustration showing how that the conditions were like a tree that was chopped down, a tree that was hewn, 
and was lopped. And notice what he says in chapter 11, verse 1. Right at a time when there was discouragement. Right at a time when they needed a word from God. Right at a time when their fears were driving them away from the nation. And they thought, well, let's, let's just move out of Judah. And let's go yoke up with the Philistines. And let's go yoke up with the Ammonites. And let's go yoke up with the unsaved crowd because it's safer there. And at that moment of time, God said, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch that shall grow out of his roots. Now look at the word stem. The word stem, we don't really appreciate it in the English, but it really means this in the Old English as well, as well as in the original Hebrew. It's talking about literally a tree stump. He's saying if you look at where they were at, they were like a tree stump. And they looked at it and said, can anything good come out of this tree stump? They're like some kid that took some shearers and wrecked havoc in your garden, and all that was left was a stem. And he says, I realize that you feel like you've been reduced down to a tree stump and down to a stem. But he says, something's going to happen. He says, I'm going to promise you your future is good. By the way, for every Christian, your future is good. Amen. He said, your future is good. He said, your future is excellent. He said, I want to tell you something. You did have a failed king, but there's a king coming. There's a, there's a branch that will grow. A branch represents life, and a branch represents newness, and a branch represents connection, and a branch represents newness. I mean, we love it when springtime comes, when after we've pruned our trees and new branches are coming and flowers start to bud, and we like it when we plant a seed in the ground, that when, when we start to see something come up, a root, the root spreading out, and something comes up out of the ground. We love to see those kind of things here. That's a blessing to us. And God was giving them a word of encouragement encouragement. He says that out of the stem of Jesse, he said, listen, you've had some failed kings, but there's a king coming out of the stem of Jesse who will not fail you. And he's called the branch that shall grow out. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that branch is talking about Jesus Christ. You know that in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah 23, and you know in the book of Zechariah, it's talking about Jesus Christ who is that branch. Jesus Christ was the one who gives us hope. Jesus Christ is the one who's the king who never fails. And so notice some things that he teaches us about this as he's trying to encourage them and bolster their confidence and increase their faith and get them from looking at their conditions and to get them looking at Jesus Christ here. Number one, he talked about the fact that, that Jesus Christ has a faultless description. Notice the very first thing we read is about his righteousness there. Notice in verse four, verse four, it says, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And they needed to hear that because Ahaz and all these other kings did not do the poor right. He says, with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. He'll be a righteous king. Verse five says, and with righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. While well, a few years later, Jeremiah would write his book and his prophecy. And Jeremiah reminds uh, uh, over and over again there in Jeremiah 23 that Jesus Christ is a righteous branch. Now we need to seize hold upon the word righteous to understand its meaning. Righteous is a very good meaning. Righteous refers to a flawless character. Righteous refers to the fact that he's holy. Righteousness refers to the fact that he's absolute. Righteousness refers to the fact that he's all truth. Righteousness refers to the fact that he's all God, that he's all acceptable, that he's morally acceptable. He's flawless in character. Listen, everybody's trying to find the right candidate. And this are quest to try to find the right candidate. They look to the Democrats, they look to the independents, they look at the peace and freedom, they look at the Republicans, and everybody has their eyes on one thing. They're looking at performance, what that person can do for them. Let me tell you, they're all going to fail you if it's based on performance. You can't look at performance, you've got to look at character. And here's the reason why Jesus Christ can be trusted, because his character and his performance all match up. 
And when you look at his performance, you see the fact that his performance is the fact that he became man yet without sin. His verse 2 in chapter 12 says, he's the God of my salvation. He is sinless. He is flawless. He is righteous. He is holy. Listen, for you and me and every political candidate and every expert out there, there is none righteous. No, not one. But with God, Jesus is all righteous. He's absolute truth. He's absolutely flawless. And we go on a little bit further than that. It speaks about his righteousness, his faultless description. He's a righteous king and he's a righteous leader. But it goes on by telling us he has something that human leaders don't have. He has the spirit of God upon him. Notice verse two. We read about this later on in the book of Revelation about the seven spirits of God. And it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel might and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Listen, you read all that and you wonder, man, can our president and our Congress, can they have that? And listen, the spirit of Jesus Christ has all of these things. And they're saying, he's saying, listen, I don't need to tell you this, but I'm gonna tell you that the spirit of the Lord, God's upon him. And then notice verse three, he's so full of the spirit and he says, all of God. By the way, when you have all of the spirit, you have all of God, Amen. But he tells something else that's very interesting. Look at verse 3. And he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Now, when we read that the way we read English, we're thinking, well, what does that mean? And we've got to go back and see what the original means from that. And the idea of quick understanding literally means that he's so full of the Spirit. Listen to me this morning. He's so full of God's Spirit. There is a scent. There is an aroma that you know he's the real thing. There's a scent and there's an aroma that you know the Spirit of God is on him. He's the real deal, amen? He's real, he's true, he's absolute. And so he speaks about the genuineness and the absolute of Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus here that he's righteous. And we see Jesus Christ that he's a righteous king and a holy king and filled with the Spirit of God. And he makes right decisions and not bad decisions there. But there's something else we see. Not only does he tell us about this king who cannot fail and this king who is holy and this king who is righteous and this king who is everlasting. He tells not only about a faultless king, about a faultless description he goes on and notice from chapter verse 6 to the end of the chapter he speaks about a faultless dominion he tells a little bit about his kingdom he tells about a kingdom now that was important because judah had a failed kingdom that moment of time it was filled with faults they had a lot of corruption there's a lot of things there the leaders couldn't be trusted they needed to know can we get can we get our kingdom turned around here and notice the description here in verse 6 to 24 speaks to us about a prophetical event it speaks us to what we know as bible students as the millennium now the millennium means the 1000 year reign of jesus christ we have a separate message i'll preach a little bit more about that but the old testament prophets as well as the book of Revelation speaks to us about the 1,000-year reign of Christ. The 1,000-year reign of Christ begins when he, when he appears at his second coming and he comes here to earth to do ju- judgment against the nations and he establishes his kingdom on earth. Now, it's a wonderful kingdom. It's the kingdom that we're to pray for. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the description of this kingdom, if you would, please, verses 6 to 8. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young lion shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, or if you would, the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. 
That will be a time, the millennium will be a time of unprecedented peace. I mean, people are trying to sign peace accords to get peace on earth. Beloved, there will be no peace in this world until Jesus establishes kingdom. It will be a time of unprecedented peace. It will be a time of no violence. I mean, th- I mean, consider this. There are no carnivorous animals. Even the, even the lion shall lie down and shall eat, uh, will, will eat grass, as he says, like the oxen. It will be a time of peace. Judah and Israel will be at peace. The Gentile nations will come to Jerusalem to worship God. It'll be a wonderful kingdom. It'll be an everlasting kingdom. In fact, we go a little bit further down. Notice verse 9. The Bible says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters shall cover the sea. Notice that the earth shall be filled with all of the knowledge of God. Listen, our president has declared today a national day of prayer. Thank God for that. Amen? Amen. And in our praying, let us pray that the gospel during these times can still circle the earth. And let us pray that the gospel will not be impaired or hindered from going to different places. And let us pray that our missionaries, that God will give them extreme wisdom and discernment of how to get the gospel out. And he says, but in that millennium time, the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Listen, our world doesn't need a lot of experts. Our world needs Jesus Christ. Our world needs the word of God. Our world needs the knowledge of the holy. And here he's talking about during that time, all of these things will happen. God will be known. God will be worshipped. God will be praised. Every household will praise him. And during that time, there will be no more adversary relationships. Jerusalem will be the center of worship. In fact, he talks about an ensign in verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Jesus, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Now, an ensign means a banner or a flag. Now, today, all the countries of the world have their own respective flags. You go to the United Nations, you see that every nation that's represented there, they fly their flag. Listen, during the millennium, only one flag. That's the flag of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to do away with all the other flags. You may have the Christian flag, you may have the Baptist flag, you may have some other flag, but thank God, during that day, there's only one flag that will be maybe flown, and that's the flag of Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can bring about unity. And so as we watch this here, the Lord is encouraging Judah through, through Isaiah, and especially Isaiah's heart, during a time where there's fear and uncertainty and doubting themselves and losing faith in God. What, what is going to happen here? And the first thing he does, he gets the eyes of everyone, starting with Isaiah and then to the nation. He gets their eyes on a faultless king. He gets their eyes on a king who will not fail, a king who's on his throne, a king who's holy, who's of holier eyes than can behold evil. He's a king who's for eternal, who's everlasting to everlasting. He's a king who's righteous and full of the spirit of God. And so now their hearts are encouraged and their hearts are, they're they're, they're encouraged about their future. They're encouraged about what will happen. They're encouraged about that king called Jesus, whose name is Jesus. And they're encouraged about a kingdom. But here's the question as we close this morning. What about now? What about now? I mean, that's great about a future kingdom. And that's great about a future king. And that's great that that, uh, that'll happen. What about right now, God? I'm thankful God gave us chapter 12 because in chapter 12, he tells about right now. In the context of chapter 12, he's still prophetical. He's still looking ahead, but he wanted to give him something that was practical, something he could seize and hold on to right there. And he says, in that day, thou, he's talking to Isaiah, he said, in that day, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou was angry with me. Thine anger is turned away. Aren't you glad when God forgives you? Aren't you glad this morning, if you're going through chastisement, there is an end to that chastisement? And he says, at the end of that, thou comfortest me. Aren't you glad this morning, the midst of uncertainty and fears, there's still the comfort of God that you can seize on? Amen? He's a comforting God. He's the God of all comfort. Don't try to find your comfort in experts. Don't try to find your comfort in medication. And don't try to find your comfort by going astray and isolating yourself. Find your comfort in the Lord himself this morning. 
So the feeble conquered, see a faultless king. What about right now? Would you notice the faith confidence? Everything he said in chapter 11 demands a response. It is a future response, but also a present response. And Isaiah, who was shaken, Isaiah, who was scared, he's now got bolstered in his faith, he's bolstered in his heart, because God is saying to him, listen, you're going to say one day, you're gonna, the day's going to come, he says, I want it now, not later. He says, the day's going to come, you're going to say, behold, God is my salvation. By the way, God is the only one who can give you salvation. God is the only one who can save you. He said, behold, God is my salvation. To save means to rescue. To save means to deliver. To save means to pull somebody out of dire circumstances. How many understand this morning that if you're born in this world with sin, and you are, and that you have the sentence of sin upon you, that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. Do you understand? There's no hope for any sinner in their own self because their sin has already condemned them to a devil's hell. And that's where God comes in. Because when the absence of what we cannot do, God does. And he says in verse 2, and you can almost imagine as if a choir was about to sing. They're going to hit their crescendo right on this in verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. And this is Isaiah speaking. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will trust. And not be afraid, amen. For the Lord God, the Lord Jehovah, is my strength and my song. And behold, he is my salvation. Dwight L. Moody, great evangelist, had a lady that came to him in one of his campaigns. She said, Mr. Moody, God gave me a verse of scripture that helped me. I'm going through a great, terrible time. She said it was Psalms 56.3. Would you look at that, please? Psalms 56.3. In Psalms 56.3, she showed him the verse, and he read it with her, and it says this, What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. That's a good verse. That's where everyone in this room is at. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. Mr. Moody, who knew his Bible very well, he smiled at this dear lady. He said, man, that's a great verse of Scripture. Can I take you to a verse of Scripture? They'll take you a couple notches above that. She said, what? He took her to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, and he says, you read to me what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. He says, look what God says, I will trust and not be afraid. Amen? Yeah. There's a difference. I will trust and not be afraid. That's real faith. That's real faith, that in spite of the circumstances, I will trust and not be afraid. And that's what he's saying here, I will trust and not be afraid. You see, this morning, we're at a place, we have to decide, we're either going to, we're going to have to be crippled by fear, or we're going to trust. I will trust and not be afraid. That's the answer for today. That's the answer for this crisis. That's the answer for your situation in mind. There will always be crises, there will always be disappointments, there will always be problems, there will always be a new outbreak, there will be something new that's going to happen, there's going to be calamities, the finances will fail, money will fail, all these things will happen. There will always be those things, but we can still trust and not be afraid because we have a king who's faultless. Listen, listen this morning. When Moses was at the Red Sea, he said, I will trust and not be afraid. When Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah saw the fiery furnace heated up, and King Nebuchadnezzar said, you're going to go in that fiery furnace unless you bow, they said, I will trust and not be afraid. Daniel was one of the three most important men in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. 
During that time, he was the president of the, of the three chief guys. All of his colleagues turned against him. And they said, the only way we can find fault with this man is we've got to create a law that will, will, will blame, will call it that where his God is, they, what the worship of his God will be against him. And so they got a law passed. They, 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 they connived the, the king of, of Medo-Persia to sign into law that if, 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 if anybody worshiped anybody other than the, than, the, than the king, that they basically would be thrown to a den of lions. Well, he sealed it with his ring, didn't realize he'd sentenced basically Daniel. To, Daniel knew what happened. Daniel was not a party, but he knew they did it against him. And the Bible says Daniel did as he always did. He went into his, into his room. He opened his windows up. He pointed his face towards Jerusalem and he prayed morning, evening, and noon. Let me tell you today, if you're not very careful, you're gonna be paralyzed by the fear of the coronavirus. You'll become informed and then obsessed instead of becoming informed and going into, going into prayer. And what did we need to do like Daniel, in spite of the circumstances of crisis being bad, we need to pray and we need to pray more. And he knew what was gonna happen, but God spoke to him during his time of prayer. And he knew that God would deliver him. He said as he faced those roaring lions, as he faced that lion's den, and those lions were hungry, needed a meal, God shut the mouths of those lions. But Daniel, before all that happened, he knew he could trust and not be afraid. I say to you this morning, brother and sister in Christ, we can trust and not be afraid. When Stephen knew that the Jews were about to throw him out the city and stone him, he said, I can trust and not be afraid. What about right now? What's the answer? I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of the coronavirus? I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of losing your job? I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of getting reduction in hours? I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of getting sick during these days? I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of your, the financial markets collapsing and your portfolio going upside down, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of being diagnosed with something other than coronavirus, I will trust and not be afraid. You're afraid of rejection, isolation, or abandonment, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of being left alone, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of not being forgiven, I will trust because God does forgive and trust and not be afraid. Afraid of taking a stand and living for God during these days, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of getting baptized and joining the church during these days, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of serving the Lord full time, by the way, during times like these, God still calls men to the ministry. Afraid of serving God full time, I will trust and not be afraid. Afraid of where you'll spend eternity, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. How is this possible? Look at verse two. The Lord God, Jehovah, is my strength and my song. And what's your strength this morning? If it's other than God, your strength is in the wrong place. And what kind of song are you singing? Are you singing the blues? Or are you singing, I will trust in Jesus? So how do we do this as we close this morning? First, have faith in God. I will have to trust and not be afraid. Second, look at verse three. He says, when you trust and are not afraid, and you recognize God as your source of strength, he says, therefore, it's kind of like pulling it all together. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. I'm thankful it's plural, not singular, amen? Stop getting your water from other than the wells of salvation. Draw deeply on Jesus Christ. Draw deeply, deeply on those wells of salvation that nourish our soul and satisfy our lives. Thirdly, have a life of prayer. The Bible says in verse four, call upon his name. 
Fourthly, be a fervent witness for the Lord. Look at verse four. Declare his doings among the people. Hey, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna announce possibly tonight a new ministry we're unfolding. I've told the deacons and staff about this new ministry that God put on my heart this week. It's a very simple idea and thought we're gonna use because right now, uh, the, the unsafe community we're dealing with, the unchurched community, they're isolating. They're, they're, they're very reluctant to talk to us and this ministry, I believe, if we work it right and pray over it and put some effort behind it and just let God work, it'll, drink, it'll bring the people to us and, and so that we can, we can engage them and work with them. And some of it may be by phone and by social media but at least we've got, a, we've got some connection with them and I want you to pray with me about that and we'll talk more about that maybe tonight. But we need to, we need to, we need to be a fervent witness for the Lord. Hey, look, let's just say this morning we don't have an Easter musical. That doesn't mean we stop soul winning. And that, does, that means we don't stop giving out tracts and that doesn't mean we stop doing all the things we're supposed to. We still need to be a witness because you know what? You've got a coworker, relative who still needs to get saved during this time. Amen. Fifthly, let's praise the Lord. Amen? He says, sing unto the Lord for he has done excellent things. However this turns out, God... You meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Amen? Praise the Lord. Six, place your entire faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the saving of your soul. You might be here this morning, someone watching live stream, you're not 100% sure you're saved and going to heaven. And I don't want to play upon this, but if you contracted the COVID-19 and the doctors can't help you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? I'm not sure that the God of my salvation who's holy and righteous, left the glories of heaven and took upon him the form of a man, yet without sin, to exhibit the love of God in dying for your sins and mine. He died on the cross through the shedding of his blood, horrific wounds. They buried him in a grave. Praise God, three days later, he rose again from the dead. He paid the price for sin for all of us. He satisfied all of God's demands for sin. That's why God told Isaiah, that day shall come, and you'll say, behold, God is my salvation. Salvation is a personal experience. Salvation is a personal decision. You must decide you're going to call on the Lord to save you. And today, if you're not sure, we invite you today, right where you're seated and right where you're watching, to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be saved this morning. If you're not sure, you need to get saved today. This morning, I will trust and not be afraid. Will you trust the Lord? Will you trust God and not be afraid? Will you trust his word? Will you pray that God will give us revival? Would you pray that God will help us to grow strong and not grow weaker? And be careful but have convictions and let God use us. May God help us to undergird the principle here, this truth, I will trust and not be afraid.